Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse and Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, the flowering of the strange orchid, by H. G. Wells. Eric, why did you want to discuss the flowering of the strange orchid? Well, I've got to tell you, Jesse, I have always enjoyed this story. It it seems to be sort of a a simple horror story if you read it. I guess. In, in one more or less superficial way. Uh, it's the story about a man who doesn't really like to adventure himself, but he likes the idea of adventures. So he, he buys exotic orchid roots, and he grows them in his hothouse. This is a story of one of those that uh, actually turns out to be a vampire orchid from which his... Uh, his housekeeper manages to save him just in the nick of time. Um, and at the end, of course, he's just happy because he has the memory of this terrific adventure uh, rather than thinking, oh, my gosh, what have I done? It, mm-hmm. It's a nice story. I dig it, too. And um, I I kept thinking about all the food. <laughs> I know you're a big food guy when it comes to science fiction, and I think you're right. Um, but I was thinking about all the food in this story and how uh, it sort of reflects the fact that he is food. Ah, very interesting insight. I hadn't thought about that, actually. I, When I thought about him as a vampire, I mean, the orchid is a vampire, um, I hadn't made that connection. But, of course, in, in that regard, the orchid has something in common with the Martians in Wells's The War of the Worlds. Absolutely. In fact, that's that's uh, another connection I hadn't thought of, um, which is, uh, I think, five years down the road from this story, um, I, th- I believe. I think The War of the Worlds is 1898, and this is 1905. Oh, four years. So You're right. Seven four years down, earlier. Uh, 19, 1894, actually, is the first publication of this story. It, it, it is m- better known from 1905, but the original apparently is in the Pall Mall budget from August 2nd, 1894, ah. which was one of his really great years for short stories. There was like 10 uh, short stories or so from that year. Well, that, that date fits more with his most productive science fiction period. The The construction of this story is wonderful. So tell me about the food. What are you thinking about the food here? Well, uh, at the beginning of the story, he's having his second cup of coffee and talking about uh, perhaps going down to Peter's and buying the uh, orchids that he plans on buying. Um, later on, he's drinking soup while looking at uh, the orchids. His uh, homemaker uh, cousin is uh, making jam. Uh, he puts on his alpaca jacket, which is obviously not a plant. But um, I was thinking about all these very specific uh, sort of plant-derived items. And later on, even the quinine that is mentioned, these are all plant derived items except for the alpaca jacket that we use in our daily lives without really thinking about you know this was once alive and it it was it, it we just think how useful they are right and so um that got me to thinking about why orchids and of course orchids this is a really cool fact orchids are our source for vanilla which is a flavoring agent but 
for all the work that it takes to put the orchid, you know, all the specialized hothouse conditions and the the block of teak and uh, the charcoal and all the things that the that the very sensitive orchid needs. Really, what it needs is blood. And so I just thought it was a a very nice evocative image of sort of the tables being turned. And this is something I think is that a well, teak the, table. <laughs> um, perhaps the in a in a hot house, I think you'd probably need a teak table. Um, but uh, it, he's just so good at turning the tables on expectations. This is exactly what our our main character wants as well, and he gets it. Um, luckily, his uh, cousin housekeeper is there to uh, prevent the marriage from going through. I like the, that you've used the word marriage. This is a very, very sexy uh, story. Uh, totally. And in, in one way, it's a, uh, it's a fight between two females for, yep. for, for the body of the male. Uh, Wedderburn, or Winter Wedderburn, uh, is somebody who has enough money that he doesn't have to work, as opposed to his cousin who works for him, uh, so there's a kind of a class structure and a gender structure going on in the story, which I think, frankly, is meant as a critique of those who live idly on money rather than on, on work. Uh, he, when Winter Wedderburn, for instance, thinks about, he has often thought about pursuing the kinds of researches that Darwin has done, we're told in the text. But somehow things always got in his way and he never got around to doing them. So we've got a, sort of a critique of, an active person who really does produce something, even if it is knowledge rather than a physical object, in Darwin. And then we have the dilettante, who can afford to be a dilettante because he can hire other people and doesn't have to work himself, and he produces nothing. And he's the one who, in fact, is likely to die in England, as opposed to uh, Darwin, who manages to come back and have a, a great uh, career. Now, his name... Winter Wedderburn, I started thinking about that. He's called Wedder, Wedderburn throughout all of the story, except the very first time, uh, when he's called Winter-Wedderburn. But we know from the cousin telling the uh, telling W.W. Uh, to wear his alpaca jacket and carry an umbrella. That is, sorry, he says that he wants to carry, put on his alpaca, but she says he should also carry his umbrella because there's a lot between here and the railway station. She mm-hmm. recognizes the uh, the dangers of being exposed to the elements. So his name, Winter, is a reinforcement of the notion that we're not in some balmy summer time in England. We are in England at a time when the weather is decidedly contrasting that of the the jungle in which the root was collected. Now, the name Wedderburn, I I'd looked all over. What could this possibly be? I, I could not find it as a surname anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I broke it down. And this is another one of the fine examples of which there are a score, at least, in this story, of Wells, who loved just gathering nuggets of knowledge, using the deep meanings of the language. If you think of a wedder as someone who weds, then it brings us right back to your use of the word marriage, Jesse. Mm -hmm. And then the question of burn, well, okay, so 
this marriage is going to burn him. Um, in the simplest way of looking at that, uh, okay, he's he's burned by this experience. It turns out to be something that doesn't kill him, but it is something that damages him. However, when I looked it up, it turns out that in 18th century British slang, mm-hmm. to be burnt means to have contracted a venereal disease. <laughs> so this guy, Winter Wedderburn, we, we, it's foreshadowed from his name. This mm-hmm. guy is about to have a an adventure with this orchid that will be like a marriage, which he, of course, has never planned, and from which he will, in fact, be sickened, which he was the first thing that... Uh, that his cousin does when the odd job man spots her um, ministering to him uh, with his head on her lap, almost like a pieta, mm-hmm. is to call, say, call Annie, whom we've never heard of before, but I suppose she's a house servant, and her name comes ultimately from the Hebrew Hannah, meaning grace. Um, you know, go get God's help and Dr. Haddon. So, which is a hard name to pin down, although it seems to come from the Irish Hayden, meaning a valley. So he knows where he belongs. She's right away getting other people to save this guy, her cousin. Uh, so he comes out, you know, being treated for sickness. But he gets restored to good English life, and he has enough money not to have to worry about the consequences. So it brings us back to marriage as a... Uh, as an economic exchange. I mean, one has to ask. Here he has his cousin, far removed, we're told. It's not a first cousin. There's no question here of incest. It's a cousin far removed uh, in the genealogy. She lives with him. She cares for him, uh, literally, uh, by providing food. And emotionally, apparently, when you listen to their dialogue, she makes jam for him. She's providing for his future. They have everything in a marriage but a marriage. Mm-hmm. And why does he not marry? Why is it that, that he is so afraid of, uh, of having a relationship with a woman? But in fact, he's overpowered, and that's the word, the overwhelming sweetness of the scent mm-hmm. of the orchid. Uh, it's, it's amazing how marriage, sexuality, sex, class are all brought together in this. And food is a perfect example of what that is, whether it's the vanilla we would take from orchids or the food of us that the orchids could take. It's true. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a really cool line that comes from that uh, unnamed workman, the odd job man. And to me, it sort of classifies this story altogether as to what, what it's doing and what, what effect it has on us. And the line is, for a moment, he thought impossible things. (laughs) How is it that you read that line? Well, this is when the the glass on the hothouse has been broken to let out the uh, soporific perfume of the orchid that is uh, entranced and put to sleep our hero. But she has just gone in, saved him, and... As he sees this coming up over the hill or past the gate, he sees something that we don't exactly see. Is she murdering him? Is that the impossible thing? Or is it that they're having sex in the, 
in the hothouse. It's really unclear to me what what it means, and that's why I love it so much. This this story has, as you say, there's a, a lot of depth to it. One of, one of the things that is said early on is that uh, some of the orchids, some orchids have flowers that are not used for reproduction. And in this case, that is probably true. The flowers, when they do bloom, emit a scent that is overpowering to the man and almost overpowering to the woman. She, her only choice is to get some air into that hothouse. It's wonderful how. Uh, let me comment first on the impossible things. I, I, I'm with you. I think that um, my first thought was uh, not about sex in this instance, but murder, because they were both fully clothed and, sex were, or murder, and yes. were told that she has that her hands were all red, uh, the inanimate body with red stained hands. She was holding it, uh, hauling the inanimate body. So I, I thought murder, but I can see see the point of sex as well. But of course. If you also take this as an example of what in the very first line, first paragraph is called speculative, uh, you know, that the selling of orchids always puts one has a speculative flavor. I don't know if vanilla is that speculative flavor. Um, what speculative fiction does is have us think impossible things. Exactly. Um, so th- the story is, in that sense, self-reflexive. It's uh, the author noting, noting that he uh, he knows he's writing a story. Uh, but but those impossible things are the ones that we have to take as real. And um, that is the real in the world of the story. And if the story matters to us, then there must be a some some kind of reality, whether it's social critique or it's psychological reality or, or other things as well, or many of them combined. And this story has that. One of the things that it has that is so wonderful with Wells is that he gets the science right. There really are orchids for which at that time nobody had any idea whether or not a pollinator could get into the flower. And in fact, one of the, the varieties that he mentions, I can, uh, it's Cypri something or other. Um, let me see if I can find it. Um, it it's uh, Cypri, ah yes, Cypripediums. Um, they are no known insects that can fertilize the cypripediums. Well, if you look up cypripedium in Wikipedia, mm-hmm. you will find it. And you will also find that the particular picture that's posted there for it is of a an orchid called a lady slipper, which has this huge red labellum coming down from it. Um, labellum is a word that actually also appears in the story. Uh, Wells gets the science right. Labellum is the singular for labia, which is a word that most North Americans know in another context. And if they've ever seen uh, Georgia O'Keeffe's famous paintings of orchids, they know darn well that the flowers of orchids look like female genitalia. But it's all, they can't. They can also look like people and skulls. The they orchids can. are one of the cool I things about orchids. Jesse, give, give me a second here. I understand that, Sorry. but I'm talking about George O'Keefe's because these are very famous images. There's there are more orchids than any other flowering plant, more species than any other flowering plant. So a lot of them you can find all kinds. 
But the name orchid comes from the Greek word for testy. So as and, you know, the removal of testicles, which is done sometimes for people with prostate cancer, is an orchiectomy. Um, and that's named after the shape of the root of, or, of the plant. So it's as if it's as if Wells has chosen a plant which looks female and is attractive, really turns turns winter winter burn on when it comes to, to flowering. Um, but at root it is in fact able to be more male than he is it has its aerial rootlets all the time and they are penetrating and they come together and in fact when the doctor is attracted to the plant he hesitates because one of those aerial rootlets is still swaying and he manages to pull himself back so we have all the power of a dominant male in this orchid and all the attractiveness of a female in combat with the cousin. I just wanted to get the count, the connection between the, the, the language and the scientific uh, background and the, the sexual conflict together. That makes, that makes sense. There's, the, the, as you say, there are more uh, kinds of orchids than any other kind of flower. There's also more orchids than there are any kind of uh, mammal or any kind of uh, fi- uh, spiny fish orchids one of the cool things about orchids that is different than other flowers is well most other flowers is that they're bi- they have bilateral symmetry so that they look the same on the left and on the right and this is often used uh to attract insects uh they replicate the female of the species uh, of whichever insect they're trying to attract um but Often this can take the shape, as you say, of female genitalia or of anything that that we would probably not be attracted to sexually. But when we do see it, we this is the thing about flowers is that they are the sexual organs of the plant. That is, uh, uh, the blossoms are the sexual organs of the plant. So when we collect flowers and we give them in bouquets, we are attra- we are symbolically doing something but it's the attraction that is designed to attract other other animals insects particularly or birds that is also attracting us it's having a a strange effect <laughs> i like um, your use of the word strange did you it is absolutely appropriate this this is a strange orchid yes in that it has a strange effect on this particular man in it had the effect even before he went out and bought it. <laughs> Indeed, because his whole reason to go out and buy something is that he as, he, as he says, he had the expectation of adventure. It's almost as if he called it into being, as if this story is uh, built on the notion of fairy tale and wish fulfillment. And, and like many fairy tales, um, the, the protagonist emerges from danger through no fault of his own. I mean, think of all those fairy tales where the hero gets saved by the heroine, right? I mean, the prince in Cinderella only manages to get the right girl because Cindy takes care of it, right? Again and again, um, it's the girl who saves the guy protagonist. It is Gretel who saves Hansel, even though Mm -hmm. Hansel thinks that he's leading the way back out of the forest. And um, that murderous Gretel is what becomes the murderous 
cousin here. She she cooks the goose for the orchid the same way Gretel manages to literally cook um, the witch in the house made of food, to go back to your, uh, your earlier point. So we have a kind of fairy tale here that allows us to go happily because we get out of it free. You know, we, we no longer suffer um, into this strange land. Now, I thought about that word strange. You know, the word strange, of course, you know, in French, it's um, étranger. Um, it's someone from a foreign place. Mm -hmm. uh, so I looked up the etymology of that, and it turns out that strange, which is estraño in Spanish, is cognate with extra. It means from without, mm. something that comes from without. So when the cousin opens that door to the hothouse, she's letting the native environment that should be there in England in and gets rid of or needs to get rid of the environment that... Wedderburn has artificially created in what is referred to again and again as a steamy little hothouse. Mm -hmm. And to do it, since opening the door isn't fast enough, she takes a flower pot. She throws flower pots through the glass. I mean, those were intended by Wedderburn as homes for his orchids. And the cousin comes in, this good, sensible jam maker, comes in and uses them to destroy the barrier that is keeping at bay the environment that's inimical to this orchid from outside. Um, and flowering, I mean, is another one of those words. Um, when you think of someone in full flower, it's what? A virgin? Right? Mm -hmm. Flowers are, last for only a brief time before they go to fruit. Flowering is a transitory state, and that's what Wedderburn really wants. He wants that that perfect moment of ripeness, but he is happy not to actually have the marriage. Um, it's a it's a character study as well as all those other things. I think this story. And I love, as you say, it's it it is predicted that something strange is going to happen. He wants something strange to happen. And there's a, a, a brief exchange near the beginning of the story that I think is, is just really terrific. So You want to read it? Yeah, I want to read this here. Winter Wedderburn says, I have a fancy, he said over his coffee, that something is going to happen to me today. He spoke as though he, he, as though he moved and thought slowly. Uh, no, I, in my text it says he spoke as he moved and thought. Slowly. Yes. Ah. Sorry. Uh, oh, don't say that, said his housekeeper, who was also his remote cousin, for something happening was a euphemism that meant only one thing to her. <laughs> you misunderstand me. I mean nothing unpleasant. Though what I do mean, I scarcely know. You know this is such a mysterious exchange that it allows us to... It primes us for our own imagination running wild. I think that's true. Uh, he fills us, Wells fills us with, with things that will make the end seem, seem perfect. A few paragraphs below what you just read, uh, Wedderburn is continuing saying, nothing ever happens to me. And then he lists some other fellow's happy, uh, other fellows' happenstances. Just the other week, on Monday, he picked a, up a sixpence, 
which of course is not all that much money, even no. in um, in 1894. On Wednesday, his chicks all had the staggers. That means that they were ill. On Friday, his cousin came home from Australia. Probably not a good thing because he's suddenly responsible for someone. And on Saturday, he broke his ankle. What a world of excitement compared to me. I mean, Wedderburn doesn't think of the reality of consequences at all. That So, of course, he scarcely understands what something will mean because, in fact, three times out of four, it's liable to be bad, just as his cousin had said. But he doesn't recognize that. And the very last line of the story reinforces that, uh, tells us, how this man, protected by his modicum of money, uh, really feels. The next morning, the strange orchid still lay there, black now and putrescent, which is a line that reminds me of the end of Poe's The Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar. The door banged intermittently in the morning breeze, so we're back to you know, getting the environments mixed with England being able to overpower the jungle, and all the array of Wedderburn's orchids was shriveled and prostrate. Now, shriveled is exactly the word that was used at the beginning for the root. So it gets mm-hmm. repeated, and then it's repeated once in the middle as well. But Wedderburn himself was bright and garrulous upstairs in the glory of his strange adventure. He thinks this is great. He even thinks it was his adventure. He'd be mm-hmm. dead if it weren't for the fact that its cousin is the one who came in. She's the one who had a real adventure. But her thoughts and feelings are irrelevant to a man in Victorian society, or at least that's what Wells wants us to understand, bringing us back to using this character study, I think, as a critique. I agree. And I think we are at our end. I think we've we've enjoyed talking about this story together. Uh, I, I must say, I'm I'm awfully glad that we have had this chance, Jesse. Me too. <laughs> <laughs>